you join with me in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege and joy it is to call you our Father. We bow before you, thanking you for the salvation that we have received in Christ. We thank you for your grace in our lives, how you have called us out of darkness to walk in your marvelous light, and how the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We call you our Father, knowing that we are adopted as your children, and we rejoice in all that you are doing in our lives, and all that you will continue to do, Lord, until we go home to be with you in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the joy, the blessings you poured out upon our church last night at the fall festival, just the joy of seeing brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the children, Lord. And we're reminded by this time, Lord, to pray for the children of our church, that each child is a a soul that will live forever. And we are called as a church to invest in the next generation and to teach the gospel to these children with a prayer that you may save them and that you may raise them up to be your own and that they would go on to serve you, Lord, and to take the gospel, Lord, to places that we uh, could not in our own lives. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of ministry and pray for the children's ministry even now that you will continue to do this work, Lord, in our church and to bless these children for your glory. Father, at this time, we also lift up Pastor James and his family, Lord, to you. We thank you for the work that you are doing in their lives during uh, this uh, special assignment, these Two months, Lord, away, uh, and we praise you, Father, for your sovereignty in their lives, and Father, for the work that you are doing. We rejoice, Lord, knowing that you are sovereign over every circumstance in our church and, and in um, Pastor James's life as well. And we thank you for the encouraging message from last week, the reminder that Christ is our high priest and that we are look, to look to him and to receive grace from him. We ask that you would continue to um, bless Pastor James and Serena and their family, and we look forward to um, having them back at our church. We ask now as we open your word, Lord, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? Would you illumine, Lord, these truths to our hearts and our minds that we may be freshly challenged and freshly encouraged, Lord, by your love and your grace? And we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we are continuing our study of this great epistle, and we have reached one of the most treasured and beloved passages in all of the New Testament, one that will take us directly into the heart of the gospel itself, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading from verse 1. Paul says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." If you were with us two Sundays ago, you know that we are studying a passage that deals with the unity of the church, the unity of the church. This is Paul's concern from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way down to chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he repeats this call in chapter 2, verse 2, saying, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is a call to unity. It is a call for the church to be one in spirit, one in mind, one in soul, one in love. And you remember from two Sundays ago that Paul is addressing the worthy walk. He's calling the church to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only, that is, only this one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the first way that he applies that general exhortation is in regards to unity. As the church strives for unity... The church will walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And I don't think I need to remind you that the unity of the church is a repeated theme throughout all the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament are constantly calling the church to unity. And in fact, the unity of the church is one of the primary means to advance the gospel in this world. Romans 12, 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Colossians 3, 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And what is interesting is that the Philippians really didn't have any major problems with unity. Paul writes this, this great passage on unity to a church that was relatively united. I mean, they did have some issues. In chapter 4, verse 2, he addresses two women in the church named Yodia and Syntyche. They were faithful women, but they were having trouble getting along. And so he calls these women to agree in the Lord. And he even calls a third party in, a, a person named True Companion, to come and to help these women agree. But other than that, this church doesn't have any indications of major problems with disunity. They weren't like the Corinthians who had already splintered into factions and divisions. And yet Paul feels the need to exhort this church to unity, which tells us that the topic of unity is something that all churches need to consider. It's not just churches who have major problems with disunity who need to hear this exhortation. Unity is something that needs to be maintained 
and it's something that needs to be preserved. And so Paul writes to the Philippian church and he calls them to spiritual unity. In chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, Paul presents an external perspective on unity. He pictures the church in the midst of an unbelieving world, and he calls them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul moves from the external perspective to an internal one. He moves from the church's relationship with the world to believers' relationship with one another. And he calls the church to walk in unity. Now in this text, we're going to find three basic questions regarding the subject of unity. Three questions Paul answers in this text that we as a church may strive together for unity. First, we'll see the what of unity. Second, we'll see the why of unity. And then third, the how of unity. What is unity? Why should we pursue it? And how practically do we cultivate it in our church? First of all, let's look at the what of unity. What is unity? Verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, a lot of people have different ideas as to what unity is. I remember as a junior higher going to a youth camp, and we stayed up late at night singing songs around a campfire, eating s'mores. And at 2 a.m., I remember distinctly feeling like this is unity. This is the most unified I've ever felt with any group in my life because we're almost delirious. We're not thinking straight. And for a lot of people, that's unity. Just get the church together, have them sing a bunch of songs, a lot of warm fuzzies toward one another, and that's unity. Last week, my daughter came home from school and she said to me, Dad, I have a BFF. <laughs> and I said, what is a BFF? And she looked at me like I was dumb or something. And she said, Dad, it's best friends forever. I said, isn't first grade a little young to be making such long-term <laughs> commitments? Can't you say it's a temporary best friend or just... Best friends for first grade? She said, no, it's best friends forever. And for a lot of people, that's unity. Having a BFF, someone you can hang out with, someone you can be friends with, do stuff with. Some people feel like in order to be united with a church, they need to have a group of BFFs. And then once they have that group, they feel like that's unity. Well, is that really unity? Paul tells us what unity is in verse 2, he says, first of all, complete my joy. And I just want you to note the gracious tone that is in this text. Paul is not going to beat them over with a whip. He is going to just appeal to them in love. He's just saying, I already rejoice in you, Philippians. I'm already praying for you and just rejoicing every time I remember you. But he says, complete my joy. Um, literally, fill it to overflowing. Cause my joy to just overflow. How? By pursuing unity. He says, by being of the same mind. Literally, phroneo, thinking the same things, sharing the same mindset. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, at minimum here, what Paul is calling for is unity in the truth, unity in Scripture. You say, how is it possible, Dan, for all of us to come together as a church with all of our different opinions and all of our different preferences? I mean, you say potato and I say potato. You say Baja Fresh and I say Panda Express. We all have these different opinions. How do we come together and we all agree? And we're all joined together in one mind. Well, at minimum, it is unity in the truth. Unity in Scripture. We must be united as we stand underneath the authority of the Word of God. And the more that we allow the Scripture to saturate our hearts and our minds, the more we think God's thoughts after Him, and the more we become like-minded with one another. So at minimum, Paul is calling for unity in the truth. But I don't think that's all he's saying here when he says, have the same mind. Because if you drop down to verse 5, Paul says, have this mind. And he uses the same word there, phroneo. Have the same mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is, not only is the church to be united in the truth, but the church is to be united in their humble mindset toward one another. They are to share the same mind, which is the mind of Christ, which is a mind of humility. And I just tell you, brothers and sisters, that there are many churches that are united in the truth, but they are not united by a humble attitude toward one another. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, and then he says, having the same love. He says, love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, Jesus said. Colossians 3.14, love is the glue that binds our hearts together in oneness. Paul is calling for more than formal unity. He's calling for relational unity. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See, it's easy to sign a doctrinal statement and to say that we are united in the truth. It's much more difficult to get in each other's lives and to see all the messiness and all the flaws and to love one another. Yet Paul says not only be of the same mind, he says maintain the same love. He's calling for the love of the church to unite them in unity. Paul says, complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love. And then he says, being in full accord. That's one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word, sumsukoi. And I love this word. I've, this is my idea for the next camp t-shirt. It's sumsukoi. This would be, if I owned a sports team, this would be our motto. We would say this in every huddle. We'd come out and say sumsukoi because the word literally means 
one sold. One sold. It describes a deep internal unity of heart and mind, and there's no deeper you can go than the soul. He wants them to be in full accord, to be one soul. Acts 4.32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. Paul says, I want you to be one in mind, one in love, one in soul. And he goes right back to the first idea, phreneo, and of one mind, thinking the same things, having the same mindset. What I submit to you is, this morning is that unity is much more than sitting around a campfire and, th- and having warm fuzzies toward one another. Unity is more than having a few BFFs in the church that you can hang out and be friends with. Spiritual unity is a deep oneness of heart and of mind and of soul that is created by the Holy Spirit as we gaze upon our Lord Jesus Christ and have his love for us unite our hearts one another. It's a supernatural oneness. It cannot be created by human means. It is different from an organizational unity. I mean, any company can come up with unity in just a functional sense. But Paul is calling here for something much deeper, much greater. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he goes on to give the basis for this unity. In verse 4, he says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. This is just so basic. The church is united in one heart and one mind as we focus on one Lord and one salvation and one gospel and as we see that the Holy Spirit has knit us together in one body. As we reflect on the deep positional oneness that we have in Jesus Christ, we practically grow in our oneness toward one another. Brothers and sisters, we have one mission. We have one purpose. We have one love, Jesus Christ, who has loved us. We have one reason for existing in this world, and these are the truths that bind our hearts together in unity. And the more that we allow those truths to take root in our hearts, the more we will grow in oneness of soul with one another. Paul addresses the what of unity. What is unity? It is a deep spiritual oneness that is created by the Holy Spirit. Let's move to a second question. The why of unity. The why of unity. Why pursue unity? You know, some of you are saying, you know, Dan, on one hand, this is really encouraging, and on the other hand, it's really discouraging. Because I can't even agree with my roommate on what fast food we're going to get tonight. I mean, Burger King or McDonald's. I mean, we have this debate, and we just can't agree. And you're saying, not only are we to agree on everything, we're to be one in soul. I mean, husbands are saying, I can't even agree with my wife on what clothes to wear. 
You know, my wife and I went clothes shopping this week. I hate clothes shopping. It is on the bottom of the bottom list of things I'd, I'd want to do in this world. And we couldn't agree on anything. She, I put something on, she says, I like it. I say, I hate it. Or I liked it and she hated it. And we just go back and forth and everything we couldn't agree. And finally, I just started pretending. I, and then she said, she said, I like it. And I said, I like it too. <laughs> and she was like, really? No, I don't. I hate it. And we can't even agree on, on clothes or, or styling of clothing to wear. I mean, how am I supposed to pursue oneness of soul? And so, I mean, those, those things just sound so impractical. How do we, why should we pursue this kind of unity? Well, Paul tells us in verse 1, he gives us the motivations for unity. And he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. This is what we call a first-class conditional statement in the Greek the if is not in question. The if is presupposed. The verse could be translated, since there is encouragement in Christ. Or because there is encouragement in Christ. Paul is appealing to the Philippian believers to remember the gracious blessings they have received because of Christ. He's taking the Philippians down a trip down memory lane, and he's saying, remember, just remember, Philippians, how Christ has been so good to you, how he has shown his grace to you. And he begins by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ. I mean, Philippians, have you ever been encouraged because of Christ? Has Jesus ever brought you any joy, any kind of blessing. This is an appeal to experience, to the experience of the Christian. He isn't appealing to these abstract doctrinal ideas. He's saying, Christian, remember, has Jesus ever been good to you? Has he ever encourage you. The Greek word is parakletos. It carries the idea of coming alongside someone and speaking words of cheer. Listen, has, has Jesus ever forgiven you when you sinned? Has Jesus ever strengthened you when you were weak? Did you ever come to the point in your Christian life where you said, gosh, I've, I'm a failure. I'm a flake. I've sinned this sin so many times. I'll never get this right. And Jesus came alongside you and said, I died for that sin. You're forgiven. If you sin that sin 70 times 7, I will always forgive you because my blood cleanses all sin. Has he ever encouraged you? appeals to experience even more. And he says, if there's any comfort from love, have you ever been comforted by Christ's love? That's an intimate term there. It's, it's, um, it could be translated uh, consolation. The idea is to speak closely with someone and offer them words of cheer. It's, you know, sometimes the, the love of Christ is, is 
earth-shattering, and it's glorious, and it's breathtaking. And we have these great statements in Scripture talking about the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of Christ's love. And it's like this roaring ocean that just comes and sweeps us off our feet. And other times, the love of Christ is intimate, and it is personal. And it is Jesus speaking with his disciples, saying, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And he's saying here, Have you ever had Jesus speak to you personally and just let you know that he loves you? And have you ever been comforted by that? Have you ever meditated on the Word of God and just seen the cross revealed? in the scriptures and just had your anxieties removed because you realize that Christ loves you. And if he loves you, then there's nothing else greater in life. Or if, have you ever been in trials or difficulties and just realized that the love of Christ is behind every circumstance in your life and so you can have confidence and peace knowing that he is orchestrating all circumstances for your good for his glory. Have you ever been comforted by Christ's love? He piles it on even more and he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, moving from the work of Christ to the work of the Spirit, is, is there any koinonia, any fellowship with the Spirit? You know, Jesus said that the Spirit, when he comes, he's going to be your helper. He's going to be the one who comes and lives inside of you and encourages you and teaches you and helps you. Have you ever been blessed by the Spirit? You know, whenever you've sat under the teaching of God's Word and had that truth come alive to your heart, that was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whenever you've been in worship and you've sung your heart out to Jesus Christ and had Christ beauty, just ravish your heart, that was the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, whenever you've sp experienced spiritual growth or sanctification, if you've ever grown anywhere in love, joy, pace, patience, peace, kindness, any of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that was the Spirit coming alongside you and helping you and ministering to you and bearing His sweet fruit in you. Paul says, have you ever been ministered to by the Holy Spirit? And then just to cap things off, he says, if there's any affection and sympathy. I think that's general enough to apply to the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit. But when I read those words, I immediately think of the Father. Because the whole point of having a Heavenly Father is that He is a God of affection. I was thinking of my own life and how I just, I love my kids and, and I love them, uh, you know, I love them even more now because they can babysit themselves. And, and, um, and there is just this, and you fathers can relate with me, there is this unreasonable affection you have for your kids. My wife and I passed by Baskin Robbins the other day and it was $1 Tuesday. Ice cream cones for $1. And my immediate thought that I, that I, I said to Mina, my immediate thought is we've got to bring the kids and have them eat ice cream. And she said to me, 
Dan, weren't you just mad at them an hour ago? And I say, yeah, but man, we got to feed these kids ice cream because that's what dads do, right? <laughs> Is we just love our kids. And it's not this logical thing. It's not this um, idea that we think things through. It's just our hearts are just given to the children in our homes. And I think that's the point of when we call God our Father, that he is not, oh, thou great deity who ruleth the universe out there. No, he is our Father, and we appeal to him as, our ch- as his children. And Paul says in verse 1, have you ever experienced the affection of God? Has he ever been sympathetic towards you? I mean, think back to your conversion, Christian. Think back to the day that you came to Christ. Did we not come to the Father, still covered in dirt with the pig slop of this world? And did we not come with only the expectation that he would call us into his home as a hired servant? And were we not surprised, even shocked, to see the Father spy us from a distance and to run to us in love and to embrace us and to kiss us? And did our hearts not leap for joy within us when we heard the words, let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Isn't that the whole point of our relationship with the Father is that he lavishes us with his affection and his sympathy. And Paul is saying here, he's just wrapping all these blessings up, and he's saying, look, have you ever been encouraged by Christ? Have you ever been comforted from his love? Have you ever been ministered to by the Holy Spirit? Has the Father ever shown to you his affection and his sympathy? If so, would you make my joy complete? Would you fill my heart to overflowing by pursuing unity in the church? You know, Paul doesn't bring to the Philippians a whip with a whip and crack the whip and say, get united or else. He brings to them a photo album and he opens the pictures of the many joyful memories that they have in Christ. And he just appeals to them in love. You know, if I wanted to get my son to get motivated to do better in school, I guess I could sit him down and go, hey, you better do better in school or else. Or else, no more video games. No more food. <laughs> no more movies. I mean, I could do that. <laughs> or I could take him to Chick-fil-A. My kids love Chick-fil-A. And I could buy him a ice cream shake and I could just tell him son don't you know that your dad loves you don't you know that your mom would do anything for you have you been loved in this home have you experienced our care and our affection are you not the joy of our hearts does it not thrill us more than anything else to see you doing well Son, remember this, to pull out my iPhone. Remember this picture, these joyful memories? Remember Disneyland? Remember that the ice cream cone that I bought you late at night because you guys were so, you guys begged me for ice cream. I mean, just remember all the ways that we've cared for you and loved you. 
you know what would just thrill me even more is if you just went from a B plus to an A minus. <laughs> it would just fill my heart with joy. I would just, I would, I would just, it would make me the most happiest dad in the world if you just did that. Don't you think my son would receive that a little better than if I just went in and, and just said, A plus or nothing? You know, that's Paul's heart here. He's just appealing to the Philippians. He's just asking them, look, have you been blessed by Christ? Why should you pursue unity, Philippians? Because Christ has been so good to you. And if you just remember through the course of your Christian life, hasn't he been so faithful time and time again? Just faithful to forgive you. Just faithful to love you. Just faithful to provide for you. Just faithful to give everything that you need. Hasn't he been so good to us? And if he's been so good to us, will we not do what is precious on his heart and pursue unity. Paul gives us the what of unity. He gives us the why of unity. And then he moves to the third question, the how. The how. How do we cultivate it? And he just gets real practical here in verse 3. He just boils all of this down. I know we've been talking about a lot of lofty things. But he just boils this down to the nitty gritty of everyday life. Husbands, I would encourage you that this is to be applied in your marriage your wives and wives to your husbands. I would encourage you, collegians, that this needs to be applied to your roommates and your classmates. This needs to be applied in your dating relationships. This needs to be applied in every relationship in the church. It's just real practical. Verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you notice verse 3? He says, do nothing. Let me repeat that. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. This is the how. This is just the nitty-gritty. This is how do you cultivate unity in the church. Here's how you start. You start by what you don't do. You do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Now, what is the word rivalry? It means selfishness or selfish ambition. It was a word used to describe politicians who live for self-promotion. He's saying, do nothing from a spirit of self-exaltation, a spirit of self-promotion. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, there were preachers in the church who were preaching out of rivalry in order to make a name for themselves. And he just says, stop doing things out of rivalry. And then he says, do nothing from conceit. Kenodoxia in the Greek. Keno means empty and doxia means glory. Do nothing out of empty glory is the idea. Do nothing out of personal vanity or vain conceit. Paul's undercutting all of the selfish motives that underlie so much of what we do. So much of the prideful, self-exalting motives that 
arise in factions and divisions and disharmony in the church. And he just says, stop acting out of rivalry and out of conceit. You know, this verse is so straightforward. It is so unmistakable, but I I believe that this verse needs to be plastered on our hearts and on our minds. I believe that it ought to be running through the screensaver, if you will, of our hearts, repeated over and over, because the truth is that we do so much out of these selfish motives. You remember the disciples who were constantly arguing over who was the greatest, James and John asked for the two greatest places in the kingdom because they wanted to be exalted over all the other disciples, even at the Lord's table. After hearing Christ's repeated calls to humility, they were arguing over who was the greatest. After they saw Jesus wipe their feet in servanthood, they were acting out of rivalry and vain conceit. You know, these sins of rivalry and conceit, they die a hard death. We need this to be repeated over and over to our hearts. That whoever must be great among you must be the least. That the way up is the way down. That only those who are humbled are exalted. And so Paul says, do nothing from these prideful motives. But, here's the contrast, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the key to unity right there. It's in that one word, humility. And the word humility means lowliness of mind. We talk about people being humble in heart. What Paul is saying here is I want you to be humble in mind. I want your thoughts, your mindset, the way you view the world to be one of a servant, to be one of a slave. Verse 5, he says, this was the mindset of Christ who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was a lowly perspective on life. And he says, in humility, count, that is, calculate, reach a settled conviction in your mind. Count others more significant than than yourselves. In other words, don't just act like other people are more important than you. You know, we could all put on the act. We could all say, just, just put on a show. Say, oh, you're better. Oh, no, you're better. You're better. I mean, guys, we do this on the, on the football field or on the basketball court. No, no, you're better. But inside we're thinking, no, I'm better. He's saying, no, what I'm after is that in your heart you really believe. You really believe that your brother is more significant than yourself, than who you are. And the reason why you do that is because that is what Christ did for you. Christ had every right to think of himself as more important than us. And yet in humility of mind, he let go of his rights and his privileges and he humbled himself to walk among us. In humility, count others to be more significant than your than yourselves. You know, if President Obama came to my house, I would have no problem believing, really believing that he's more important than me and deferring to him in every conversation. 
Or if I were to play basketball with Kobe Bryant, I would have no problem really believing in my mind that he is more important on the court than I am. And he gets the ball every time down the court. What Paul is saying here is in your minds, the problem in the church is that you don't really believe in your hearts that your brothers and sisters are more important than you. And that's why your church is filled with rivalry and and vain conceit and that there's disharmony. But if there's humility, there will be unity. And then in verse 4, Paul just brings this way down to earth, way down to the simplest level of application that we all can understand. He says, let each of you, that is, let each individual Christian look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Literally, it reads, Let each of you look not only to the things of yourselves, but also to the things of others. You say, Dan, what's the things of others? It's it's just anything going on in someone else's life. It's the joys of others, the struggles of others, the sorrows of others, the blessings of others. It's the idea is you're looking to, you're caring about, you're being wrapped up in the things of others, not in the things of yourself. say, Dan, unity seems so unattainable. It seems so lofty. It seems like such a goal that's out of reach. And Paul just boils this down to something that is so practical. And he just says, you know where you start if you want to cultivate unity? Care for other Christians. Just care for them. Come to the church and get wrapped up in the the lives of others. Don't get lost in your own world, your own preferences, what's going on in your life. Let the church pull you out of that world so that you are looking to the things of others. Find someone to care for. Find a burden to carry. Find a sorrow to share. Find a request to pray for. Find a blessing to rejoice in. Care for others. If you find yourself in the fellowship of the church only talking about the things of yourselves, only being wrapped up in the things of yourselves, going on and on about your life, your problems, your desires, what you want to see happen, brothers and sisters, that is the fruit of pride. Humility is counting others more important than ourselves and because we count others as more important than ourselves we get wrapped up in the things of others the pursuit of unity is not complicated but it does require some deep rooted repentance because at the heart of all of this paul is calling for us to repent of the selfishness and the pride that is in our hearts, and to humble ourselves and to have the mind of Christ. Let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, do you care for other Christians? Do you care? Does your heart 
feel sorrow when another Christian is struggling? Is your heart to understand how your brothers and sisters are doing? Or is your entire focus on seeking to be understood? And you're so angry and upset because no one in the church understands where you are. Is your heart to listen? To ask questions? To just let people know, hey, I'm praying for you. You're like Paul. You're in my prayers. And I'm, I'm just Wanting to know how you're doing. Is your heart in humility to count others as more important than yourself? That was Paul's heart, wasn't it? Here Paul is in prison, awaiting a sentence that may end in death, and yet his whole life is wrapped up in others. And that's what Christ did. When Christ left his heavenly glory and came to this earth and died on the cross for our sins, in humility he counted others more significant than himself. And he looked to the things of us. He cared about us more than he cared about retaining his heavenly privileges and rights. Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to take the Philippians into the very heart of the gospel itself, the humbling of the Lord Jesus Christ to the point of his incarnation where he became a man, and then even further down to the point of death, even death on a cross where he suffered on our behalf, in our place. Brothers and sisters, Paul would call us, God would call us as a church through this text to unity. He would remind us of the grace that we've received. He would call us to be one heart and one mind and one soul. And he would call us to just apply this in our lives, to walk in humility, caring for others, more important than ourselves. Next week, we'll look at verses 5 to 8, and we will look at a passage which unfolds to us the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we gaze at the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died. Let's bow in prayer together and close our time. Our Father, we are reminded this morning of your great affection toward us. Thank you for the countless ways, Lord, that we have experienced your grace. Lord, you have encouraged us, and you have consoled us with your love, and you have shown to us your affection. And even now, Lord, you have ministered to us through your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we pray that as a grateful response to all that you've done for us, Lord, help us to love one another. Lord, help us to love one another when things are difficult. Help us to love one another when there's miscommunication, we have issues to resolve. 
pray for every married couple in this church. Lord, as they are one flesh, help each husband and wife to walk in humility toward one another, counting each other as more important than themselves. Lord, help us to be a caring people, a caring church, Lord. That the fruit of humility, Lord, would be a unity of spirit that would glorify Christ. We pray this, Lord, for the advance of your gospel. We pray this for the glory of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name.